0: Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 350 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT and every week, every show here is a loaded episode of Getting Over, but particularly this edition of the podcast as AEW presents two of its four hours of its very special Grand Slam show from Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, New York, and NXT, while taped this week, still transitioning from the 2.0 branding to the white and gold branding coming up in a couple of weeks. Plenty to talk about across both shows, not only because of what happened on the episodes themselves, Dynamite and NXT, but because of what it all means going forward for AEW Full Gear coming up in November, and NXT Halloween Havoc, which for the first time will be a premium live event airing on WWE Network slash Peacock. You still got to get used to that in October. As you can tell, plenty to discuss on today's show. But as we begin every episode of Getting Over, it starts with a reminder that this podcast is all about defiance. So please, folks, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a moment out of your damn life and leave a written review as well. Tell everyone why you love the show and why they should subscribe. The written reviews help us so much. And of course, every time we get a new five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, we read it live here on the show. That's extra incentive for you to take a little bit of time and do it. We have not had a written review, new review in a week or so. So, you know, if you have if been putting it off, and uh, I know Silver King reminds me every episode, I'll do it eventually, do it now. We'll read it on Tuesday's show. Thank you very much. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We tweet live during the shows, trying to add some comedy to it as well um, with, with GIFs and videos and things like that. So, you know, on top of that, of course, we, we tweet live when new episodes are available. We cover wrestling news. We do everything that a wrestling Twitter account should do, hopefully, and I do see the numbers climbing up, but we're not where we want to be quite yet. So if you have Twitter, follow us at Getting Overcast. If you don't have Twitter, make one and then follow us at Getting Overcast. It's the best possible way for you guys to send in uh, you know, questions for the show, comments for the show. You can DM us. The DMs are open. You can tweet us. You can also email us. I don't really give our email address out that frequently, Getting Pod. At gmail.com. You can hit us up there as well with any questions, comments, or hey, if you have advertising inquiries, you can hit us up there too and we'll advertise your product on the show. Anyway, that is not what we're here to talk about. We are here to discuss AEW and NXT. We are going to get to one and then the other. As always, we have timestamps in our episode description. So if you only care about AEW or you only care about NXT, You theoretically can jump around, but I hope that anyone listening to this show is listening all the way through, hearing what is happening across both brands, even if you don't happen to watch one of them on a weekly basis. This week, because of course it was a special show, we are going to go ahead and start with AEW Dynamite Grand Slam. I just want to explain a little bit uh, about how we're going to break this down. Obviously, The two-hour Rampage, Grand Slam Rampage, whatever you want to call it, was taped. That, of course, is not airing until Friday. This is a Thursday show. So what I've decided to do is take every aspect from last Friday's Rampage that fit with Dynamite Grand Slam. We're discussing it on today's show. Everything that had to do more specifically and exclusively with things that are happening on Rampage Grand Slam We are going to save until next week's show. Most of those are very minor notes because the build to the show happened very quickly, seemingly in in some cases without much consideration, just wanted to do a match, did a one-show storyline, threw it on the card. So we're gonna do that to cut down on time on today's episode, but also to keep all of that analysis together because you may forget about some of our takes kind of leading into when we actually discuss what happens on that show. That does mean next week's episode is gonna be a little bit extended. It's gonna be three hours of AEW uh, talk instead of two, but I do think it'll all wrap itself up nicely. As far as Dynamite Grand Slam goes, no matter what you guys think about any individual episode of AEW TV or any given Grand Slam show, obviously there's only been two last year and this year, what needs to be said about this particular event is... Their setup, AEW setup at Arthur Ashe Stadium, it's just outstanding. Everything from the set to the ramp going flat to the canvas, the Lucite with the LEDs and the graphics on it, to the huge screens that are above the ring. Of course, that just comes with Arthur Ashe. It's a tennis setup. Uh, To how close the fans are to the action, it creates this unique, intimate wrestling show, yet it still feels like a big deal. It feels in many ways, like a stadium show. And of course, adding to it all, New York wrestling fans are top-notch. AEW should really try to utilize many of the aspects of this particular setup as they can for regular pay-per-views. The Dynamite set that they use, it works well for weekly TV. You don't really need to tweak it that much. But this was far better than almost all, not all necessarily, but almost all, of AEW's pay-per-view sets. It just felt like a big deal. The big screens were eye-catching. The darkness that surrounded them, the lights, the white and blue lights, everything about this just made it feel big. And I, again, in a, it's, it's a big feel in a small setting that is somehow bigger than it looks, but also smaller than it looks. It's a very odd to describe, but it's a very unique setting for professional wrestling. I'm glad that AEW had the foresight to kind of go do this. I'm shocked that after decades upon decades, WWE never thought to run a tennis stadium, let alone this one in particular. I know whenever WWE goes to New York, they wanna do MSG, they wanna do Barclays Center, especially now that that's built. But man, this has been there that whole time and they could have done something really cool here as opposed to always going, I'm not saying necessarily to do a WrestleMania at Arthur Ashe Stadium, but really all they do is Madison Square Garden, Barclays, or they go to New Jersey uh, for the stadium there. I I forget if it's still called MetLife Stadium or not, but whatever the hell that is, uh, the Meadowlands. But they never did this. And it was shocking to me, seeing how well it sets up for wrestling, that they never actually took advantage of this. Great job by AEW doing that. Now, as far as this year's show, this edition of Dynamite Grand Slam, I would call it a really good episode of TV. I didn't think it was spectacular, but it was good. It's tough for any AEW show to live up to the hype that they and Tony Khan try to create for themselves. And this one certainly did not do that. But did it deliver a special show feel? Yes. And that's ultimately what was promised here. So you have to say what was promised was delivered, even if it wasn't as grand or spectacular as promised. But that kind of goes back to wrestling promoters historically. Promoter's gonna promote, Carney's gonna Carney. And a lot of that happened here, as it does with some WWE shows and other events. It's not uncommon, but it does happen far more frequently with AEW than it does some other brands. Now, all that said, let's get to what actually happened Wednesday on AEW Dynamite Grand Slam. In the middle of the show, Wheeler Yuta was on stage getting interviewed by Tony Schiavone, which, putting him in that spot on a big show on its own before anything else happened, I'm like, why the hell are they doing this? This doesn't make a shred of sense. Until... MJF interrupted. He got a huge pop before Yuta could even say a word. Uh, MJF again called himself the devil. He said he's a generational talent. He called Yuta mid, and Wheeler cut some really scripted or overly rehearsed promo about MJF getting engaged. He says fiance is smart and probably figured out he's spineless, so she'll just walk out on him and take his money. Really convoluted. MJF immediately shot back. He shit on his lack of charisma, which was straight up accurate. I don't necessarily love a heel going after a guy's weakness like that. We've talked about that before, but with Yuta, it is such a glaring weakness. It's really tough to ignore. So MJF shit on his lack of charisma. He said he came out to warn that the winner of the main event would lose the title to him. MJF then took personal shots at Brian Danielson, John Moxley, and William Regal. When he talked about Regal popping pills, Yuta shoved him. MJF shoved him back. Then he knocked Tony Schiavone down. Yuta caught him with a Fez press. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Morrissey started choking out Yuta. MJF hit him with the dynamite diamond ring, which is apparently still a thing, and that ended the segment. Every aspect of this, except for Yuta, was fantastic. He is boring as sin. Even working with MJF could not give him some personality, like nothing rubbed off on him from kind of going toe-to-toe with MJF. MJF, of course, was pitch perfect the entire time. And this gave us a glimpse into what his relationship with the firm will look like both now and potentially soon if he does become champion. So I did think it was a strong segment, even though Yuta was just a punching bag the entire time and he proved everything that the doubters already say about him, which is not really what you wanna do in a segment like that. You wanna try to protect him and and keep him away from his glaring weaknesses instead of exposing them, which is what happened here. He was completely exposed. And as far as the diamond ring thing, uh, this is consistent. I've said this the entirety of the show's existence. I don't get it. It's stupid. I don't know why he still wears it. And I mean, what is he going to, is it going to be up for grabs again? Like this December or end of this year, I think is when they normally do it. Just let him have the big ring on his hand and, and stop kind of mentioning what it is. It's, it's, it's very odd and it's been odd since the beginning. But that said, let's get to the main event of the show, the AEW world championship on the line. It was vacant. The finals of the Grand Slam tournament of champions, I know those are a lot of words, John Moxley against Brian Danielson. This was obviously the last match on the show. MJF sat in a suite with the casino chip in his lap with cameras constantly cutting to him. And when I say that, I don't mean like once every five minutes the cameras would show MJF in the suite. I'm talking about four times a minute on average. Maybe more. I would love to go back and count. I don't know that I have the time to do it. Mox focused on Brian's injured left leg from last week. Danielson hit an avalanche backdrop, but Mox transitioned into the label Lock. There was a spot where their legs were locked together and they simultaneously stood on their heads. That was pretty cool. Uh, Brian locked in cattle mutilation, then tried hammer elbows. Mox hit his Lariat. Brian then hit the Psycho Knee for a 2.5. Mox then came back with Seth Rollins' Stomp, which I thought was very cool. And then a Death Rider on Danielson for a false finish. They got aggressive on the mat. Danielson stomped Mox, then rolled him into the label lock. Mox then hit Brian with Death Rider on that Lucite ramp that I talked about. And Danielson's body rolled all the way down the ramp into the ring with Mox crawling after him for the pinfall attempt. It was another false finish. Mox got Brian in the chokehold. Danielson tried to repel himself off the turnbuckles to kind of escape it. Mox was able to keep it locked in. He put his entire body weight on Brian's back for the knockout victory in 19 minutes. After the bell, William Regal came down, but AEW was running over, so it went off the air. Apparently, what we were supposed to see was Regal and Brian putting the strap on Mox, basically out of respect and because they're all in the same faction. So let's start with the MJF thing. I liked the concept of him sitting in a suite and lording over the match. But holy shit, did they cut to him far too much, to the point that it legitimately took away from the match. And seeing online reaction, I know plenty of people felt the same way. Now, teasing the viewer into thinking MJF could impact the main event, despite being far away, was really smart on its own. Having him lurking in the background for certain camera shots, or showing him three to four times total during the whole match, that's what you do. You could even have him at one point pretend to get bored and leave. And then he's gone. And then two minutes later, he comes back or something like that. If you really wanted to amp up the anticipation and the potential ability for him to come down at the end of the match. But holy shit, every 30 seconds or less in some cases, it was horrendous production. It was one of the worst things from a production standpoint AEW has ever done. It basically told the viewer This match and its result, it doesn't really matter that much because MJF is more important than the new champion. The match was basically an afterthought to MJF sitting in a suite. Yes, AEW, we saw him. We know he's there. The crowd knows he's there. Let's crown a new champion and then we can kind of worry about that. And on top of that, there wasn't even a payoff to the entire thing. That's a really shitty concept creatively for a world championship match when you're already in a position where you're you're replacing someone who had to vacate the title in CM Punk. Now, in terms of the match itself, the wrestling was great. Two of the best in the world putting on a technical barn burner. It was an A match, not an A+. So between 4.25 stars and 4.5, smart minds can disagree between those two numbers. Um, but it was less than 20 minutes. If it had five or 10 minutes more, you're talking about maybe getting into that A-plus territory, especially if you don't give us a million MJF camera cuts during the match and we're able to actually watch the entire match. Some of the spots in the match, two of them in particular were killer. I already mentioned them. Bryan eating the Death Rider on the ramp and then rolling into the ring momentum wise. Mox crawling after him. And then the finish. Mox doing the one thing he can do, which is overpower Bryan and choke him out. That way Danielson doesn't have to tap or get pinned again. That all worked really well Uh, But it was no surprise, really, because they're extraordinarily good in the ring. They're very sound when it comes to wrestling. Now, as I said in our last show, Mox winning here was completely telegraphed by MJF's promo last week on Dynamite. And it was frustrating that we didn't even get to celebrate the title win as viewers because the show did run long. AEW continues to have a problem letting things breathe. It seemed like they intended to here. So I give them the benefit of the doubt, but... Even though that may have been the intention, it was another case of it not happening due to timing problems, which has been another long-term AEW issue. But you look at some of the other matches, uh, notably the women's match, Tony Storm retaining the title. We'll get to that in a little bit. Some other things that happened. There wasn't really a chance for the result to breathe, and that is a long-term issue with AEW. Another thing we can talk about is Danielson, who really should have won the title here. We've already discussed all the reasons why. He has now lost three of his last seven matches in AEW. All three of those people he lost to now have championships, and he does not, despite being the top guy on the roster who's never won a title and was an easy babyface replacement for Punk. Now, I'm going to assume there's a creative reason why they didn't go in the direction of strapping up Brian, And that could be potentially because his first title win is planned for a major event coming up in the future. But as of now, it is a little bit tough to see the forest through the trees. So while it's not what I would've booked, people can fairly have differing opinions on what they would do if they had the book and they were in charge. There was obviously nothing wrong with the decision to strap up Mox. He's now a three-time champion. That's kind of come out of nowhere. And clearly the move eventually is to give MJF the title. The question now is how that transpires. Given there's another title challenger with a match coming up on October 13th, we will talk more about that next week because that happened on Rampage. It sure does seem like MJF is going to wait, most likely until full gear, if not longer. Mox apparently had a vacation plan. we've talked about that. Ignoring that aspect, there's really no reason to rush with MJF to make him champion. As with Money in the Bank, something else we can talk about another day is if the chip here is going to become a complete ripoff of that, which it kind of seems like it might. But as with the briefcase, having the chip makes MJF more relevant than he already is, and he is super relevant already. So there's just not a rush to make a move here unless Mox's vacation needs to start or they came up with a plan for that. But I also feel, you know, how long of a vacation was this guy gonna take? Can he really not potentially take three weeks off, come back, do a dynamite, take another three weeks off. You know, there is still the better part of two months until we get to uh, full gear. So are they just going to have him keep it until then? And then MJF is going to beat him for the title there. And then Mox will take an extended vacation. That does play into the entire thing. um, But we don't know what they discussed. And we can't give our own thoughts and predictions around it because we don't know what Mox agreed to or what Tony Khan asked him to do regarding his vacation. So It kind of needs to be almost a non-topic going forward. But in this moment, given that it was a topic previously and he is now the champion, it certainly was something to discuss. So to wrap it up, main event, really good wrestling, um, production, terrible, at least with the MJF part of it. And what happens from here? And and is that going to be good or bad? That remains to be seen. We can't predict the future. There's certainly numerous avenues AEW can take where it will be super entertaining and well-booked. The one thing AEW normally does well is book MJF strong. There was certainly the issue with Wardlow when MJF walked, you know, kind of walked out and the way that match was booked, it kind of felt anticlimactic to some degree. Yet here we are, he's back. He seems fully invested and happy. He's at least being paid what he wants to get paid. So we'll see. We'll see how this transpires. But no question, business has picked up with MJF having returned. The problem is the way that they overfocus the main event on him, which I hope most of you agree with. All right, plenty more to talk about from Dynamite Grand Slam. Uh, the interim women's championship match I alluded to and kind of already gave you the result. Tony Storm defending against Serena D, Britt Baker, and Athena. They did a super duperplex with Athena as the base. Storm and Deeb did single leg crabs on the other two women simultaneously while trading slaps. Deeb went on a run, hitting a swinging neckbreaker on Storm and then putting her in the Serenity Lock. Baker broke that with a kick. Athena had Baker on her back and caught Deeb running at her for the top dollar slam spot that we saw from SmackDown last Friday. The spot of the match was Storm bouncing off the ropes over Athena's back, only to get caught with like a one leg code breaker. Baker somehow broke her nose and started gushing blood. Storm hit the Tornado DDT on Athena and then countered Baker's pinning combination into another pinning combination to get the win in 10 minutes. Baker attacked 15 seconds after the bell, this is what we're talking about, not letting stuff breathe. When Jamie Hayter ran down, she again chose not to turn on Baker. Instead, she attacked Storm. Second time in a row that's happened. Deeb joined the beatdown. Baker smeared blood on her stomach and stomped Athena. It was in this moment I was like, did Baker break her nose on purpose so that she could do the blood spot again? Like, I know she didn't. I'm being facetious. But it was like, oh, isn't that convenient that the nose is bleeding again And here she is, she tried to stare into the camera and they actually didn't cut to her, which I thought was interesting. She tried to do that spot again. She smeared it on herself again. It just felt repetitive. And I was curious, like, I know it wasn't planned. I know there's like a 90% chance it wasn't, but there's that 10% of me that is kind of gnawing and wondering if it was. Anyway, uh, she went to put the lockjaw on Storm. She had the glove on her hand. Then she wiped her bloody nose with the glove. Luckily, she didn't put the lockjaw in, so it didn't matter. But I saw that and I was like, That's freaking disgusting if she's about to do that move. Suddenly, as she's about to put the lockjaw in, Soraya, Paige from WWE, debuts. She walks down to the ring like calmly and and slowly, and the rest of the women just clear out. There's a really strong pop for her. She mouthed, this is my house a couple times, but nothing physical happened. She wasn't overly expressive with her movements. She didn't, like, you know, in, in WWE as Paige this is my house. She's like swinging her arms and like screaming and and doing all that. She didn't really do any of that. It was kind of toned down. Um, But then Storm and Athena went back inside. She hugged them and the segment ended. So first the match. The match was fine. Three, you know, it was a B. So 3.25, 3.5 stars, maybe 3.5. There were a couple good spots, but there was zero story. And the finish was incredibly anticlimactic. Given Storm is the interim champion, making a defense, why can't you just have her hit a finisher and pin someone? I mean, Athena just lost to Jade Cargill. Have her pin her. Let her beat Serena Deeb. Like, what is the point of having her just catch Britt Baker in a pinning combination? That was super annoying. The whole thing was weak in general, but it was done, the match and the setup, simply for Soraya's debut. So look, about that. If she is legitimately cleared by multiple independent doctors and there is no serious risk in her returning to wrestling, fantastic. But man, I am just always wary of someone's condition if WWE doesn't clear them. I am not suggesting that AEW is throwing caution to the wind or purposely risking someone's health. But it is curious how there seems to be a trend when it comes to Certain people not being cleared for one reason or another by WWE, yet showing up in AEW. The way AEW doesn't stop matches when it does seem like perhaps they should be stopped because one thing or another happens. There have now been multiple cases of in-match concussions and the match is just continuing. Certain wrestlers not being careful and doing very dangerous spots and not getting taken off TV, or being told they need to change, and similar things happening in the future. There just does seem to be a trend. Again, it's not I'm not being accusatory, it's just, how do you ignore that, right? What's interesting is Soraya showed zero urgency getting to the ring, when the setup was her coming out to save a beatdown. Yet, nothing physical happened, despite a clear three-on-one advantage the heels would have had on her. So I do wonder about her situation and the actual plans for her. You know we're probably gonna get a, we'll hear from Soraya on Dynamite, booking or something like that to pop a rating next Wednesday. And they should do that. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But maybe at that juncture, she will explain why she's there and what her goals are. But the way she was kind of standing out there with her chin out, looking over everyone, it kind of gave me almost women's division general manager type of vibes. And I could see that working if they put her in that spot. But it would also be AEW admitting fault about something, which is something they never, ever do. One thing people do forget, Sarai is only 30. She's five years younger than Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair. She's the same age as Sasha Banks. So if she is legitimately okay to wrestle and she is legitimately cleared with no bullshit... She could have a full second half of her in-ring career now in AEW. I'm a huge Paige fan from back in the day. I don't know if you guys knew that or remembered it from other shows that I talked on. And if that's the case, if she's cleared, fantastic. But we saw what happened last time she was cleared to return to the ring and very quickly had to retire again after that. So I'm cautiously hopeful and cautiously optimistic, but also legitimately concerned for her. And I hope those two things don't get conflated because they are separate thoughts that just happen to go side by side. Now, beyond Soraya for a moment, this booking absolutely killed Jamie Hayter's momentum, literally threw ice water on all the positive heat that she had generated from the crowd. The number one things fans wanted right now, number one thing, that fans wanted right now in the women's division. Was Hater turning on Baker and them feuding away from the title? And yet, here they are, right back together, seemingly for no reason, unless they're doing a six-woman tag. But even then, what comes after that? Like, even if they bubble Hater up again, the key moment is now lost. That, to me, was completely indefensible booking. Two more things before we move on. Adding Sarai is awesome, She obviously enhances the division, but the problem with women's wrestling in AEW is not talent, but booking. It never has been talent. There was a period of time where the division did need to get enhanced. It got enhanced. That was a year and a half ago. We're way beyond that at this point. And it's great that some names here and there keep getting added, but the division hasn't changed. If she raises the rent like she did in WWE for their women's revolution, it could be incredible. But if everything else stays the same, it won't matter after a couple of months, and that's completely on Tony Khan, as it always has been. Speaking of Tony, you cannot tell me that Soraya let her WWE contract expire, choosing not to sign a new one, if she didn't hear from someone in AEW alerting her to their interest. So just remember this, if Tony gets on his soapbox again and goes on a hypocritical rant uh, about whether it's behind the scenes or in public about talent being contacted or whatever, here is another pretty clear case that Soraya knew exactly what she was doing when she let her WWE contract expire. So just don't forget that. All right, a few more matches and plenty still to talk about from AEW Dynamite Grand Slam. We have the Tag Team Championship on the line, Swerve Our Glory, defending against the Acclaimed. Fabulous came down with Swerve Our Glory. DJ Who Kid entered with the Acclaimed. It popped me because... I grew up liking their rap and stuff, but it was probably the first time either of them performed in any way on television in front of a million people since like 2010. I mean, over a decade. They are freaking washed if you want to talk about people being washed. Uh, the Champions also came out in orange and blue gear. Initially, I was excited about that because I'm a Knicks fan, but then I realized they're in Queens and it was probably for the Mets and that, uh, you know, I wasn't as thrilled about that. Uh, Max Caster's rap was really strong. He had two really good lines including Swerve in our glory hole, that was fantastic. I should also note this was the second match on the show. The crowd was so hot for the acclaimed at the bell, they popped for literally every offensive move they did, whether a normal punch or something really impressive. Keith Lee tossed Anthony Bowens hard into the Lucite ramp and then missed a middle rope moonsault. Swerve tried to use the boombox in clear view of the referee, but Caster ducked and he hit Keith Lee with it, except... They were selling that he hit him in the head, it kind of bounced off his shoulder, glanced off him. It was just kind of weird, it wasn't really done well. Bowens had a flipping neckbreaker on Lee immediately, but Caster either slipped or something happened when he was trying the mic drop. He sold an injured left knee. It was tough to tell if it was real, the injury, or if it was a botch, or if he purposely kind of slipped or moved off the top rope quickly because it was shot out of frame, and they did that on purpose. And the shot was good because it would have, he would have been flying from almost over your head as a viewer to hit the mic drop, which would have been a great sight. But the question was, did they go home too early? Was it purposefully meant that way? Did he slip? And then he sold the injury. We'll get to more of that in a moment. Uh, Caster was able to continue. He had a backdrop on Swerve who took him off the top rope for some type of two man pounce that was also botched by the champions. Swerve then tried a 450 outside, but he only got like 270 of it. There was an extended distraction outside of Billy Gunn ending up hitting a famous on Swerve. Caster then dropped Kick Lee out of the ring with Caster hitting the mic drop for the win and the title change. And they celebrated in pink confetti with went off. Off the bat, first regarding the initial mic drop. I'm going to assume it was a botch that Caster sold as an injury. If so, good on him because he went to it immediately. And that's really tough to like have the frame of mind to do that. But it was odd, even if it was a botch, because he came nowhere close to Keith Lee's body and he landed on both of his feet. If you slip on the rope, usually you would fall and land on your side or something like that, but he landed on both of his feet. So if someone was there, maybe you could contextualize it a little bit more. There was a different camera angle, but it was really tough to tell for me. Um, Maybe potentially there was a match timing problem and he had to delay things, but The finish with Billy Gunn seemed totally planned, so I can't imagine that that was the case. What did happen though in that moment is it took a lot of air out of the match, and the flow from there onward didn't really recover. The wrestling was pretty sloppy the entire time, from the boombox spot to the pounce, everything just felt like one pace off. So I went three stars B- minus for this because it came nowhere close to living up to their all-out match. Literally different stratospheres of wrestling when you compare the two. But this match wasn't really about the wrestling. This was about the moment of the acclaimed going over and winning the titles. And at the end, that part of it delivered. Did I love the babyfaces cheating to win? Not exactly. Especially because when the heels tried to cheat, they failed. So it wasn't really eye for an eye. The title change was clearly the right move. But anyone who watched and is honest with themselves knows the all-out match was lightning in a bottle. If the title change happened there, it would have been freaking epic. This wasn't epic. It was just a really good moment for a team that people like. This was a better reflection of their ability this match than what we got at all-out. I believe that all-out match was an outlier and that is not to denigrate them or say that they're not a good tag team or they're not deserving of the titles. They are. They're super over. And if a tag team gets that over, you gotta strap them up. And AEW and Tony Khan, they did the right move doing that. But I think this match was a better representation of their in-ring ability than the all-out match was. The all-out match was basically their ceiling. Whereas this is like an average match of what you normally get from the acclaimed, which is fine and good, but not great. Like you would get with FTR. Or even though I'm not a fan, the Young Bucks or the Usos or something like that. A good tag team that is over like Rover right now and good for them getting strapped up. Now, will the Acclaimed have a long title reign? Probably not. I could see them dropping the straps quickly at full gear in November, but this was the right thing for AEW, was the right thing for the tag team division right now. And I do hope that we get a swerve Keith Lee feud coming out of this because that would be baller as well. So again, tremendous moment in the post-match. The wrestling left a lot to be desired. And that's actually a big surprise, again, because the all-out match was so good. Now, after the match, FTR was backstage putting over both teams. They said they finally want to get their AEW title shot after being number one in the rankings for seven months. By the way, I should note, AEW has stopped creating new rankings. At least they did for a few weeks. And that's interesting because of reasons like this. Uh, And also the women's matches that we talked about, how people who weren't ranked got shots, while other ones didn't, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, anyway, As soon as FTR said that, Gun Club stepped up to make fun of them. Uh, They also did insulting takes of their name. And that was it. So they acknowledged that they're long-deserving contenders, but immediately went away for it into a different feud. There's plenty of time until full gear. As long as they get their title match between now and full gear, that'll be a positive thing. Uh, The Ring of Honor Championship was on the line. Claudio Castagnoli defending against Chris Jericho. You may say, Silver King, I don't remember you talking about that last week. Well, that's correct, because on Rampage, Claudio came out with Yuta saying the Ring of Honor title represented honor, while Blackpool Combat Club represented excellence. Chris Jericho interrupted coming out of the commentary booth, wanting to add the ROH title to his list of seven world championships. Let's not forget that this is not really a world championship, but credit to AEW for trying to make it feel important. So Jericho said that, and that is why we got this match. Jericho hit Claudio with a superplex off the ring apron early. The FUD was really loud. I should also mention this opened the show. Jericho countered an avalanche power bomb into a huracanrana. Claudio countered a code into a pop-up European uppercut. Claudio's sharpshooter didn't work. Jericho tried a low blow. Claudio caught him for a Liger bomb. Jericho then countered a springboard move into a code breaker, but Claudio escaped walls of Jericho. Claudio did the swing, about 20 rotations, I would say. Jericho grabbed the bat, but Claudio caught it as he tried to swing. I saw some people saying this should be a disqualification. Claudio catching it. I'm okay with the referee using her discretion there. They did slightly botch a spot with the referee. Jericho then hit Claudio with a low blow and the Judas effect for the 1-2-3 to become ROH champion in 15 minutes. JAS celebrated on the ramp afterwards, but Daniel Garcia kind of stood in the background. He was reluctant to join in because guess what? Jericho cheated once again. This was a good match and it was the right choice to open the show. I went 3.75 stars and a B B+, because the finish was horrendous and the Judas effect just looks awesome awful. It gets worse every single time he uses it as a finisher. In terms of the booking, at first, it felt like an unnecessary title change. And it felt like it was done simply because of the event. They wanted a big pop. They wanted Chris Jericho going over to tell people who may be casual fans watching, Chris Jericho is now a champion. And the fact that the title change came after a literal half week build was frustrating as hell, especially given AEW could have built a longer story here between Jericho and Claudio, given the blood and guts finish, their time in WWE. There's so many different things that they could have done, and they just didn't do it. Now, I did think through it a little bit because there was plenty of time between the end of Dynamite and this show. And there are two ways that making this title change could work. If one or both happen, I'm going to be okay with it. The first is if ROH is about to get a media rights deal. Then it would make sense to put Jericho as champion for publicity, name recognition, all that type of stuff. But that remains to be seen. The other way that it would work for me is if they have a long-term booking plan for Garcia to switch sides to BCC and beat Jericho for the ROH title. The problem there is Garcia is already the pure champion. Also, he doesn't really seem ready to carry a top title in a promotion, even if it's not really a world championship. The other thing that they could potentially do is realize That Ring of Honor has too many titles, especially for a brand that doesn't have a show, and they could unify the titles. And perhaps that's a way that they could do this, where Garcia, pure champion, Jericho, ROH champion, they fight, Garcia comes away with both straps, he keeps the title for a while and eventually loses it. The other thing that people could say is that by putting the strap on Jericho, it elevates the title because now he will be talking about it alongside is WWF, WWE, WCW, and AEW world titles. The problem is the title really doesn't deserve that level of prestige. And I don't know that putting it on Jericho will actually accomplish anything given the AEW championship is within the company and AEW constantly says, this is the number one title in the entire industry. Well, if that's the case, ROH certainly is not number two. And it's certainly not three or four, which means it's just nowhere near a world title. But again, this did kind of feel like a title change just for the moment on a special show. It's also frustrating to see Claudio's first ever reign with a top title. AEW's calling it a world title. I'm not, it's still a top title. For his first ever reign with that type of strap, for it to end after two months in a match that again had a half week of build. Not to mention it continues the never ending BCC JAS stuff that should have stopped months ago. So again, good match, the right show opener, but the way Jericho is booked by AEW is frustrating as hell. The guy is one of the oldest people on the roster and he is almost never at the losing end of anything, be it a long-term story, a major match. He almost never loses the big one. And here's another example of him winning it, coming at Claudio's expense. We also had an All-Atlantic Championship match. Pack defending against Orange Cassidy. Pack was going for the Black Arrow and Orange literally just stuck both legs up in the air uh, from his back to frustrate him. I thought that was kind of funny. Orange countered for Stun Dog Millionaire, a Diving DDT and a Tornado DDT. Pac sold it like absolute death. It may have been the best sell of the entire show, him off the Tornado DDT. Then there was some kind of like botched throw. Orange countered the Brutalizer into a failed pinning combination before hitting Orange Punch. Pack then grabbed a ring bell hammer, the thing that they used to hit the bell, and he punched Orange in the face with it outside, almost like from a headlock type of grip. The referee was looking. I will say Pac held, uh hid the shot well enough that it was legitimate in kayfabe that the referee potentially didn't see it, but then they just rolled into the ring and Pac just pinned him to retain the title in less than 10 minutes. After the bell, the referee seemed to know something was up because Orange was knocked out cold from the punch, but this was also strange because Death Triangle is a babyface group. And I know Pac is the bastard and I know he hates Orange Cassidy, but this was very much a heel move for what is currently a babyface. So that was a little bit strange. Good moves in a couple spots, a very disappointing match. And it was the third straight match on Dynamite that ended using cheating heavily as part of the finish and the match decision. I went 2.75 stars in a C plus. Truly shocked. That I gave this match that grade, but it is what it is. Now, we do have a couple things to talk about from Rampage. One of them does kind of impact Rampage Grand Slam, but a lot happened, so I wanted to get it out of the way. The other two didn't impact it at all. First, Darby Allen fought Matt Hardy. Matt hit two side effects. Darby countered twist of fate into a backslide and hit a scorpion death drop. Hardy came back with a Razors Edge style Liger Bomb. It was really cool. Uh, but he did miss a moonsault. Uh, Darby then hit a code red and Last Supper for the win. They fist bumped after the bell. This actually really exceeded my expectations. It was probably the best Matt has looked and best he has moved in a long time. Obviously the right winner with the young guy going over. After Darby walked backstage, the lights went out and Brody King appeared in the ring to level Hardy with a lariat while Julia Hart stood in the corner. Brody called out Darby and Sting, saying they cut the head off the snake, but there's plenty of venom left in the fangs. He challenged them to a no disqualification match for Grand Slam Rampage. The lights went out and they were gone. Commentary said the challenge was accepted, even though Darby and Sting didn't say anything. Uh, Normally, I would criticize the immediate rematch booking because AEW claims to not do that despite it happening all the time. But in this case, House of Black does need to be reestablished without Malachi Black. King cutting the promo was key to that. I'd probably book them to win that match also. Regarding Malachi Black, he did post something extensive on social media. I did tweet about it so you can kind of read the tweet, which is a better summation. But long story short, he did confirm that he asked AEW for his release. He also said he was going to take the next couple of months off for like a mental health break. That's a very shorthand Cliff notes version of the entire thing. Now, in reading his note, it didn't come across to me as if AEW had definitely released him. However, Dave Meltzer, I believe it was, um, said that he indeed had been released. So, I'm kind of curious to see if he was released or if he was given a sabbatical, what exactly the situation was. Uh, There was another report that Malachi Black did tell Tony Khan he wanted to go back to WWE. Um, Perhaps he is released, but there's an extended uh, period of time where AEW is gonna pay him, but not have him show up on WWE TV. It's not a no-compete clause. WWE also does not have a no-compete clause. They just have periods of time, uh, 90 days for the main roster, I believe 60 days for NXT or maybe 30 days actually for NXT where you just will continue to get paid and you're not technically released yet, but you're being informed that you will be dismissed. So, you know, we will see exactly what Malachi Black's situation is, but he's at least not going to be wrestling for a, you know, good period of time um, and potentially received his release from AEW. We will find out if that is indeed the case. Also on Rampage, Penelope Ford fought Willow Nightingale. Penelope had a new look with red lace on her gear and pink circles around her eyes. Ford had a great move where she like bridged her body, flipped back up, and then hit a cutter. Willow pounced her into the ropes after Penelope missed a high-risk move. Ford then hit a pump kick, inverted Russian leg sweep, and Indian lock for the win in nine minutes. This was maybe the best she has looked in the ring, I don't know, ever. Like super fluid. You could tell she was really confident. It's great to see her improving. I can now see her as a potential contender in this division where previously I just didn't. She was great here, and I'm very, I mean, you can never tell with AEW women's booking, but I'm very optimistic about her future now in terms of in ring. Also on Rampage, Ethan Page fought Danhausen. Page won with Ego's Edge and a squash, and really that was it. It's all it needed to be. So, as I said, we will discuss everything else that happened on Rampage next week when we give you our AEW Rampage Grand Slam analysis along with our. AEW Dynamite Analysis, and NXT all coming next week. We're not going to do a special show on Friday unless something crazy happens on SmackDown. Maybe there will be a reason to do it. Still, uh, the Silver King is not going to be able to watch either show live. So to miss them live and then watch four hours of wrestling and then do a podcast, you're already talking about, you know, the next day, Saturday, and I'm not going to publish a show on Saturday. So most likely we will talk about all the extra Rampage stuff next week on our AEW NXT show. Speaking of NXT, let's go ahead and move into that. Now, starting this week, we got the first of two taped episodes. It was also the on-screen debut of the white and gold logo, which took the place of the multicolored logo above the ring. But as I suspected when we discussed the branding change last week, the graphics packages were a total mix of Old 2.0 and white and gold, it looked super odd. The new logo was used with the multicolored background in a lot of spots. It clashed really bad when they did that. Some of the graphics still use the 2.0 logo for no reason I could determine. I'm sure everything is gonna get refreshed in two weeks when the everything debuts with a, a, the new live episode is my assumption. But NXT should have just left the 2.0 logo and just put in two weeks at the bottom of that initial promo package. Because then everyone could have been looking forward to it and that new show would have had a lot of built-up anticipation and maybe they could build a really strong card for it. Instead, it's just a mishmash. Uh, This week, it probably will be next week as well. And then two weeks from now, perhaps we will see what white and gold NXT looks like. Now that's hardly my only criticism for NXT this week because the biggest storyline on the show Frustrated me to no end. Solo Sokoa and Carmelo Hayes were parent trapped into Shawn Michaels' office to open NXT. It was really cool to see HBK on the screen in an authority role. HBK said Sokoa was not sanctioned to be in the North American Championship match last week and wasn't even a choice for the fan vote, so the result was void and he had to hand over the strap. Solo said he understood, but he had unfinished business and he needed to come back to NXT to handle it. HBK wished him well but refused to give the title back to Mello because Mello tried to game the system by taking out Wes Lee and no one is bigger than the business. Funny to hear that, by the way, coming out of Shawn Michaels' mouth. No one is bigger than the business. HBK set up a five-man ladder match for Halloween Havoc with Mello getting automatically advanced to it and four qualifying spots to crown a new champion with the title vacated. This is probably the first time in the Triple H era that I've praised something only to have to go full Uno reverse on the entire thing. This was convoluted. For example, if he wasn't a legitimate champion, why did he defend the title on SmackDown? How was that match sanctioned in Kfabe if he wasn't sanctioned to be in the initial match and therefore in HBK's mind wasn't the real champion? Once that match happened on SmackDown, Solo sako was North American champion. There wasn't even a word said in the 72 hours between the initial title win and the defense, that there was anything wrong with him getting strapped up and having the NA title. So I'm gonna go ahead and assume that this was the plan all along, but if it was, it was incredibly short-sighted. A more realistic storyline would have been Sokoa being forced to relinquish the title because he signed a SmackDown contract that he did not have prior to winning it. Even better, HBK could have forced him to defend the title in the five-way ladder match that would have been a punishment fitting of the crime. He'd at least been able to hold the title for six weeks, which while not a long time is at least a legitimate reign, but he gets has to defend it in the worst case scenario where anyone can win the title and he only has a 20% chance of coming out of the match as champion. That would have been booking that I would have done as opposed to just making him relinquish it and coming up with this bullshit that he wasn't sanctioned when again, he already defended the title once before you stripped him of it, that doesn't make a shred of sense. Don't get me wrong. I'm still glad they paid off the storyline with Melo and Sokoa. It was better than just dropping the whole thing. At the same time, all of those benefits that we discussed of putting the title on Sokoa are now muted. The main roster crossover potential, the bloodline elevating the title, NXT as a whole, all of that is now for naught because they just uno reversed the entire thing. And I cannot figure out why. I don't understand why what the purpose is of going ahead and going back on your booking. It doesn't benefit the title. It doesn't benefit Sokoa. doesn't benefit the main roster. And it doesn't benefit NXT. So what was gained by doing this? To me, it was just a really bad storyline. Now, the latter match, we know that has potential. No matter what, Melo cannot win the title again. Halloween Havoc, as I said earlier, it's gonna be a premium live event for the first time, not a TV special. So they are starting the build with a bang. It was also cool to have Shawn announce a ladder match. Shawn Michaels announcing a ladder match. We've seen it before in NXT. Very cool that he did that. So I'm not angry about the booking, but we do have to call out the logical issues with the entire thing. When I say I'm not angry about the booking, I'm not angry about the booking of the ladder match. I do not like the creative behind taking the title off Sokoa. So an hour later on NXT, Trick Williams boosted Mello's confidence backstage. Melo came out and said, regardless of the vote, he's the biggest superstar in NXT. Mello said he wanted the production people, the timekeeper and the referee, all fired for letting the match happen in the first place. Suddenly, Chase U came out, they interrupted. Andre Chase got stopped twice before saying, last week was a teachable moment, and that led to a short match between the two teams. So we had Melo and Trick against Chase U. Chase got the hot tag, hit an inverted atomic drop on trick. Mello hit a huge pump kick and went for the springboard lariat. Chase ducked and hit Mello with his teachable moment pinning combination for the upset victory in four minutes and 30 seconds. The crowd went absolutely wild and the guys ran into the student section for a celebration. It was an absolute blast to see. Really good spot for Melo to take a loss given I'm sure he's probably going to come back next week and beat him clean one-on-one or something like that. Chase U totally works. It has main roster potential and Mello kind of on a little bit of a downward spiral works given he's been booked super strong his entire run in NXT. Wesley cut probably his best promo to date saying he's been cleared by trainers and while he was given the option to take an automatic entry into the title match because he won the fan vote, he wanted to respect the fans by showing what he's made of and fighting his way into the match. Stax later responded uh, to Lee's promo saying Tony D'Angelo would be the one fighting him for the spot. I had written a note prior to this that saying basically that Wesley should have automatically qualified. So I really liked that NXT, even though they didn't automatically qualify him, they addressed it head on. Oro Mensah's vignette repeated from last week. Again, this is the former Oliver Carter from NXT UK. Backstage, he was informed that his match with Grayson Waller was a qualifier for the latter match. He explained Oro means gold and he's from Ghana, the country of gold, hence the name. So now the name makes more sense. Still not great. Uh, Mensa fought Waller. Mensa hit a nice springboard moonsault and flipping Pele kick. Waller snapped him over the ropes, but when he ran for the rolling cutter, Apollo Cruz appeared out of nowhere with the red eye and he had blood dripping from his eye. Mensa then caught Waller distracted with a tope and a huge spinning heel cook in the corner of the ring for the win in six minutes. The booking with Cruz made sense. It was a really good way to excuse Waller's loss, but this match should have been about getting Mensa over. That's not gonna happen in six minutes. He did flash a little bit, but you need to build that anticipation for the finish and really get the crowd behind him. For him to beat Waller this way and have it not mean that much for his character was really frustrating. Uh, Mensa is super talented, as we've said before, so the ceiling is high for him. Uh, Tyler Bate fought JD McDonough in the main event for the number one contendership to The NXT title Braun Breaker was asked backstage to handicap the match and pick a winner. He put both of them over, but he ultimately chose Bate. Even though we already knew JD was winning, this just made it obvious by him picking the other guy. Uh, Bate hit a great half and half suplex in a standing shooting star press. He caught JD flying for a helicopter into a driver. McDonough hit a springboard moonsault outside and a 450 inside, plus a brain buster for two near falls. McDonough then escaped Tyler Driver 97. Bate escaped devil inside. McDonough then somehow countered the rebound lariat into a standing Spanish fly. Bate went for an avalanche Tyler Driver 97, but McDonough caught him with a headbutt and an avalanche Spanish fly before hitting devil inside for the win in 13 minutes. Breaker confronted McDonough face-to-face after the bell, but as he did, Isla Dragunov made a shocking return to a huge ovation. He stared down both of them. Breaker raised the title, clearly suggesting a triple threat for the championship. This was a straight up banger of a match. Some of the sequences were phenomenal. Maybe assuming the winner took something away from me, I'm right between four stars A minus and 4.25 stars A. It's right on that like margin right there, but it was awesome, extremely solid. Dragunov was a great surprise. I assumed his injury was gonna keep him out of action for like six or nine months. It seemed really, really serious. The fact that he's already back and he's in the United States on NXT, it is just phenomenal. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. That is how I felt coming out of that. It also made me think well, if Dragunov's back and he's just getting thrown into this match, why didn't we just do a fatal four way? Why do the number one contendership? Or if you do the number one contendership, maybe have it end in a no contest. That way you get Bate, McDonough, Breaker, Dragunov all together in a fatal four way. So I was a little bit surprised by that. But whether a triple threat, fatal four-way, this will be ultimately a triple threat. This is going to bang as well. So good booking with the match, great surprise with Dragunov, and very curious to see how this transpires. Damon Kemp sprayed a red X on his Diamond Mine gear and put himself over for costing the Creed Brothers their title match last week. Kemp showed footage of Roderick Strong turning down a bribe from Tony D'Angelo, and then himself, Kemp, coming in to accept it. Then he explained once Roddy got the footage, because he got the footage to prove himself, that's what Strong said a couple weeks ago that Kemp had no choice but to take him out. Kemp said he's not scared of the Creed's, but he's not stupid, so he's not going to fight them two on one. One of them can step up against him when they're ready. The Creed's were later shown beating the shit out of some heavy bags in the Diamond Mine Dojo. They argued back and forth about who would fight Kemp. Once Brutus reminded Julius that he got a lot of bruises on his face, Julius relented and let him get the match first. But Julius told him he didn't just want him to beat Kemp, he wanted him to end his career. This was the second straight week With a really strong promo from Kemp, he's definitely turning into something. The creeds were money as they always are. This remains a highlight of the show. I'm really curious to see if and how Strong is brought back. My thought potentially is Kemp beats Brutus, then he's fighting Julius, he tries to cheat, Strong runs in, saves Julius, Julius wins, Diamond Mine is back together. That's my guess on the booking. Let's see what happens. Alba Fire cut a taped promo on Mandy Rose, saying she saw fear in her eyes last week and will be the one to take her title and burn her empire to the ground. Mandy looked concerned before Toxic Attraction approached her. Then she turned confident, saying she'll kick Fallon Henley's ass, then deal with fire whenever that comes. So we had Toxic Attraction against Ivy Nile and Tatum Paxley in a women's tag team match. Ivy was furious backstage after seeing Kemp's video before their match, Toxic dominated until Niall got the hot tag. Suddenly it got really sloppy both ways with Toxic hitting a terrible double kick tag team finisher for the win in four minutes. It's just really, really bad stuff. Um, we know Toxic can go and I know Ni- uh, I almost called her Nivey. Uh, Ivy. Ivy Niall, we know she's good. So I'm not really sure what happened here, but having Ivy take the fall instead of Paxley was kind of nonsensical when she's far stronger between the two women. I guess the play is maybe she was distracted by the diamond mine stuff. But it kind of felt unnecessary to have her take the L in a short match, especially if commentary wasn't going to explain that after the bell. You're not going to sell her being in her head and sitting in the corner depressed or something like that. So for her to lose and for them not to do anything with it, at least in the moment, I didn't like that. Now regarding Mandy and Alba Fire, as I've said for months now, Fire needs to be the one to take the title off Mandy Rose. It does seem like we might be less than a month away from a WWE draft or something on the main roster. It is the start of the new seasons for SmackDown and Raw in early to mid-October. So perhaps this is the situation. They main event this on an NXT. Alba Fire, Mandy Rose, Toxic Attraction has already lost the women's tag team title, so they're not strapped up. Maybe Alba finally beats Mandy and potentially Toxic Attraction gets called up to the main roster together. I can see it happening. I hope it does happen because as I've said, the women's division in NXT badly needs to get refreshed. And Toxic cannot be there anymore. They do fit the main roster. They all work. WWE needs women's tag teams on the main roster. Mandy has reestablished herself as a singles competitor. It's time for them to go. Uh, Roxanne Perez cut a taped promo calling Mako Satomura a legend and the true measuring stick for the women's division. She said she was nervous and then showed her all of her bruises from the match, but she said she was happy to get Mako's respect. Mako then put Roxy over in a taped promo saying she knew that Roxy would be champion one day. Roxy said she showed her toughness in not succumbing to Cora Jade and promised to get her revenge. So we had Cora Jade against Wendy Chu. Wendy hit a German suplex, but Cora avoided her into the middle turnbuckle with Jade hitting a turnover DDT for the win in 430. After the bell, Lash Legend attacked Wendy with a big boot to the face. The wrestling was good here, way better than the tag team match. But what was the point of Wendy beating Tiffany Stratton? If she's just going to lose to Jade in less than five minutes, like, I guess the goal is to make Cora look strong by beating the woman who beat Stratton. And I can buy that to a degree, but if you're going to do it, let them wrestle a 10 minute match. Why are you forcing this in four minutes and 30 seconds? Almost all of the matches, except for like one on NXT were really short. And the one match that wasn't actually there were two, uh, it was the JD McDonough, Tyler Bate match. And the next match we're going to talk about Axiom against Nathan Frazier. Both matches got time. Everything else on the show was very short. So, Axiom, Nathan Frazier 2. You'll remember Axiom won the first match. Axiom hit a really nice falling springboard lariat. Frazier then beat Axiom to a superkick attempt. That was probably the spot of the entire show. Frazier took Axiom off the ropes with a superplex into a swinging neckbreaker. Came back immediately with a Phoenix splash for the win. This was an ode to Seth Rollins, his trainer, from Frazier. Some of what Rollins did as Tyler Black in Ring of Honor... You saw Frazier do in this match. Another really exciting bout between these guys and even the Series 1-1. Neither of the first two bouts felt like they came close to them going all out, which actually makes me intrigued and excited for the rubber match, which I assume is going to be a barn burner that gets more time and we see more of their repertoire. It could actually even be maybe one of the NXT matches of the year if they get enough time. Axiom is really good. Frazier's the truth. Massively bright future. And his Phoenix Splash is perfection. I would love it if for the third match, they made it not only winner-take-all in their series, but they made it also a qualifier for the ladder match because seeing Frazier potentially in that ladder match, you almost have to do it. Like, it it doesn't make sense to have a five-man ladder match and not put Nathan Frazier in it. Uh, Sangha fought Von Wagner. Sangha was infuriated on his way to the ring, I presume from the disrespect last week, but he also is kind of supposed to be this like centered guru of some kind. So it was kind of antithetical to the persona that they've been creating. They said something on commentary that he's calm, cool, and collected. And then when the bell rings, he goes crazy. And like, you know how many times we've had that? I, I just want something different. I liked what they were doing with him off screen. I didn't really like what they were doing with him. I'm sorry, outside of the ring, I don't really so much like what they're doing with him in the ring. Anyway, uh, Sangha booted Wagner. He was going to choke slam Mr. Stone. Wagner then threw him into the post and steel steps before hitting a boot inside and powering him into a fireman's carry toss slam for the win in three minutes. Normally I would criticize the match length, but I did not need to see another second of this. It was, yeah, two big meaty men bumping meat, sure. I'm not even playing the sound drop because it just wasn't good. It was rough as hell. Wagner seems to be getting worse and worse in the ring. Sanga has something, but not enough to be a single star and go on his own. I just don't know what they're gonna do with them. A schism in the ring said it was time to pick a side because it was time for everyone to accept their change and see the world through their eyes. The person in the red hoodie lurked walking amongst the fans. Uh, back in in the rear view during the promo. Joe Gacy said he's been patient with Cameron Grimes, but their wrath is imminent. Malik, Blade, and Idris Anofe ran in for an attack, hitting double tope splashes before the bell rang. Don't forget, this of course came from the parking lot thing last week. So we had Dyad against Blade and Anofe. Blade wore a sweater vest the entire match. It's just extremely strange. You have Andre Chase wearing a full sweater. It makes sense with his gimmick. Why is Malik Blade wearing a sweater vest? It just, come on give this guy a better look. Give him something else going on. Um, he had a huge Topekon Hero leaping over Onofi. The faces combined for a Doomsday Device-style leg lariat, but Onofi got knocked outside. Jaggery jumped off of Fowler's back for a Canadian Destroyer. Then they hit Ticket to Mayhem for the win in nine minutes. This was actually the first time the Dyad wrestled well as the Dyad, which is depressing because it reminds us how great they were as the Grizzled Young Veterans. I still hate the gimmick with a passion, But this actually was an entertaining match with a really strong finish. Grimes cut a taped promo later saying he's neither vulnerable nor weak like the people Gacy targets. He promised to chop down their tree starting next week. It was actually a really strong, passionate promo from Grimes, even if I hate the booking and I don't care about the feud. Uh, Briggs and Jensen got into it backstage with Gallus, who were sitting around a table playing cards and drinking beer. There was really nothing much to it, but it did set up a pub rules match. For next week, which could be cool. I actually hope they do it in a pub and not just around the ring, but I'm assuming it'll be around the ring. And last and least uh, for NXT, Sol Ruka 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 had a new version of her vignette on the beach. She debuts next week, so I am excited to see her in an NXT ring. I haven't seen her yet on Level Up. I did hear that she's kind of impressive there, and as I've noted before, she's kind of a different version of a Tiffany Stratton in terms of athleticism, ability, and potential. So. Very curious to see her in-ring debut on the main NXT show. So as you can tell, it was a really a mixed bag with NXT this week. There were two really good matches. There was a storyline in Diamond Mine that developed well that I was interested in. Certainly there was a big return in Isla Dragunov. At the same time, the booking of the North American Championship picture, despite the fact that it's going to lead to a very good match, the booking of it, very convoluted. And a lot of the matches were super short, including both women's matches. I really want to see more from that division. There are some shows where they focus heavily on it. There's others where they kind of don't really give it enough time. Still, the positives outweigh the negatives massively. But I just want more consistent booking across the board with the women. And again, more consistent booking in the main event for the men and women. I say this every week. With the men, it seems like maybe it's been rectified a little bit by injecting Isla Dragunov into the mix doing another Braun Breaker-J.D. McDonough match wasn't gonna be exciting. Getting Dragunov in there is. It also potentially creates a way for Breaker to retain the title again without pinning Dragunov. You can just beat J.D. McDonough. That pushes Dragunov away from the title, allows him to do something else. So all of those things are exciting. But at the same time, I'm very curious to see how this plays out and especially if it starts working in a better direction once this white and gold shift fully takes place. I'm also extremely curious just to see what the performance center looks like or if they do move to full sale, what that looks like when white and gold begins. Is it gonna be drastically different, just a new color scheme? How are things going to change? But that's still two weeks away. So we do need to be a little bit patient for that to transpire. So look, uh, extended edition of this normal Thursday show. We usually keep it tight around you know 45 minutes or so, but we did have AEW Dynamite Grand Slam and a number of things also to talk about from NXT this week. So just to clarify what's ahead here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast calendar, on Tuesday, we'll have our next WWE show. I seriously hope you guys did not miss this week's WWE show. It is one of my favorites that we've done. In fact, the last three episodes or three of the most favorite shows from the WWE side I think we've ever done, just because we've had a lot of stuff to really talk about. The, the uh, Three shows ago was also going over the issue with the all-out Scrum and and Tony Khan and CM Punk. But last week, there was a lot to chew on. This week, not only did we talk about the Roman Reigns, Logan Paul booking for Blood Money in the Sand, Crown Jewel, uh, we talked about the bloodline at length, the long-term storyline over two years now, where it's going to finish up and where it might rank in the pantheon of long-term WWE storylines all time. We also had a really interesting conversation about... White Rabbit and all the teases that WWE's been giving us potentially leading into SmackDown on Friday. SmackDown could also just be a continuation of all of the teases. We certainly will find out about that. Uh, Survivor Series War Games was a big topic to discuss. For those who may not know, uh, Triple H is making Survivor Series into War Games by putting two matches, one for the men, one for the women, as basically the co-main event of that show. So that, we had a very interesting discussion On that, that went in a direction I don't think fans may have expected, that you guys, the listeners, may have expected. Uh, I appreciate you guys respecting my opinion on that and Chris's opinion on that. Go back and listen to Tuesday's WWE show, please, because again, number of very interesting topics. One week from now, same bat time, same bat channel, we will be back with our next AEW and NXT show. We will cover AEW Rampage Grand Slam as well as AEW Dynamite and the final taped NXT show, presumably before the full-on debut of NXT White and Gold or whatever the hell that is going to end up being called or just the return of NXT and the departure of quote-unquote 2.0. That is coming next week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thank you all once again for listening. I would be remiss if I ended the show without reminding you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is- So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a moment. Also leave us a written review. We would greatly appreciate it. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for the latest in the world of wrestling. Episode drops and the best way for you guys to send us DMs and tweets that we can answer and read live here on the air. Thank you all once again for listening. At this time, the Silver King is going to sign off, but I'm going to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.